The reason why there's Satan attack on us is because if you can destroy the authority of this book, if you can destroy the authority of what God says, then everything's up for grabs. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for November 26, 2017. Today, Pastor Olu brings us a message called Resisting the King's Food and Wine of This Age. Oh, it's difficult to read my Bible, you know? You know, sometimes I try to read it and I just don't really understand it. Yes. You don't understand it. It's a hard book. Hard book to understand. You read one chapter and then just put it down for a week or so. You know, I really want to read the Bible, but you know what I'm saying? Sometimes I read it and you know, I fall asleep and I wake up like, man, because it's too late at night. Yes, it's boring. I heard it got it boring. Why is it so boring? Some other books are exciting. How about that Harry Potter book? Oh, that's an exciting book. Read that all the time. And you know, I don't want to spend time with the Bible, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, sometimes I, you know, I really don't have time. I really don't have time to read the Bible. I really don't have time to get into the Word of God because so much is going on in life. Yes, you don't have time. How about you pick up those video games, bro? Those are fun to play for hours. Oh, maybe you should go on Facebook and just scroll up and down and see what your friends and family are doing. <laughs> oh, how about that TV show? Why not binge watch it? Watch all 49 episodes in one night. You've got time for that, but you don't have time for the Bible. because That's what Satan wants to do. He tries to because, again, if he can get your mind off that book, if he can pull away and destroy the authority of the word of God or what God says, then there isn't any authority anywhere. Now, Pastor Olu breaks down the meaning of the phrase the world in relation to the Bible. He also brings us three key areas that often trips us up as believers in Christ. These three areas are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now, Pastor Olu says that even though Satan will use these areas to tempt us, we are still held accountable because the authority of God still stands. Now, he'll be reading from the book of Daniel. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's word here on Followers of the Way. All right. So we're still in the book of Daniel. We're still in chapter one of Daniel, actually. First seven verses. We're looking at Daniel and two things. One, the book of Daniel talks about who God is. So we're looking at some of the qualities and attributes of God. And at the same time, we're looking at how as we, as members of God's kingdom, are to act when we are in somebody else's kingdom. We've been talking about the world engine and how that, as in Man of Steel, as the world engine came down and the purpose of the world engine was to transform this earth into the topography the, the fields, the, the water structure, the earth structure of another planet. And that was the purpose of the world engine, was to, just to change earth to a whole different planet so that the leaders of that planet and the inhabitants of that planet will be more comfortable. And as world engines, our responsibility as followers of God is to come into this kingdom, the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this earth, and to transform it into the kingdom of God. And we ought to be influential in the kingdom of this earth as we are ambassadors and diplomats from the kingdom of God. And so a great example of that we've been looking at is Daniel. Daniel was a 14-year-old boy in the kingdom of Judah, and he was snatched up by Nebuchadnezzar and brought to this kingdom of Babylon. And there in Babylon, he underwent some things. We talked about last week the brainwashing that King Nebuchadnezzar put on him. Daniel chapter 1, 
youth without blemish and good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them, and this is what we talked about last week, the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And we looked at what was the significance of the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What was it that King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were trying to do to the children of Israel that they had captured and brought over? And we talked about how the literature represents the spirit of the age, represents the morals and the ethics of the world. And so by making those boys learn the literature, they were trying to convert their mind or their ethics or their idea of what right and wrong was into what the Babylonians and the Chaldeans said was right and wrong was. And so the idea there was to change their ethics, their morals, their right and wrong to be acceptable to their spirit or to their kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of God where they came from. We looked at language and we introduced a word called sociolinguistics. You remember that? And sociolinguistics had to do with the fact that the language represents social behavior and human interaction and how that what the Babylonians were trying to do by teaching the language was try to assimilate them or to make them more comfortable in the environment that they were in. The whole idea of what is against us as the body of Christ when we go out into this world is that the world wants us to be comfortable with their literature and their language. And it's our responsibility to be not like the, the children of Judah and to have no distinction. That our responsibility is to have a distinction. There should be a difference with us as the body of Christ as opposed to people who are not in the body of Christ. Meaning that our morals, and we talked about this last week, our morals, our ethics, our what's good, our bad, our what's right, what's wrong, those things that we are comfortable with and the things that we're going to accept all come from the word of God. That's where we get our right and wrong from. And our behavior and how we interact with one another also has to be a biblically-based relationship. And so the first part that the Babylonians wanted to do with those kids was to brainwash them. It was an attack of the mind. And then we closed last week looking at Proverbs 23, how the, the writer of Proverbs said, above all else, guard your mind. So that was the first part they tried to attack them, to try to indoctrinate them or to brainwash them. The second piece that they looked at is with, let's look at it. So we're back to verse 4. I'm going to go right, right in the middle. And to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Then verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that they drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. So, again, this was a, I keep using the term brainwashing or, or indoctrination. What they wanted to do was to take these people who were of the kingdom of God and to get them to act, think, move about, react, respond, not like those of the kingdom of God, but like those outside the kingdom of God. And the idea was to go from the kingdom of God to the kingdom of this world. And so I thought this week, and I was like, let's talk up a little bit. What is this kingdom of this world? We hear about it. Don't be like the world. Don't look like the world. Don't act like the world. What is it? Does that mean that I shouldn't wear Hollister shirts? Because people in the world are wearing Hollister shirts, so I'm not supposed to wear a Hollister shirt. Does that mean I shouldn't wear my Tims? Because people of the world wear Tims. What, what does that concept mean when it says don't be like the world? So the idea, okay, what is the world? Turn me to 1 John. We're going to spend a little bit of time. 
understanding what is it that God wanted to keep his people away from? What is it that God was so bent and so gave us so much effort and so much writing in the scripture about how to, what to stay away from, how not to be like? And so when we talk about the world, when you hear us say the world, the Greek term there is the cosmos. And so it's not talking about necessarily the people, but it's talking about some mentality. In 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 15, John says this, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Now, John was written, 1 John was written to Christians. Starts off saying, don't love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you say, okay, wait a minute. We're supposed to love everybody. So is he talking about world people, or is he talking about something a little deeper? Well, he goes on to explain what he means by the world that we're not supposed to love. Verse 16, for all that is in the world. So he's about to explain what he means by the world. What is this world system? What is this world kingdom? All that is in the world The desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Got King James, it says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John says, hey, I'm going to explain to you what we mean when we're talking about, about this world concept. Don't love the world. Stay away from the world. Be different from the world. The world has three attack modes, three characteristics that represent something. If you want to know if I'm about to do something, I'm about to do this worldly or I'm about to do this spiritually, line it up against these three things and you'll be able to tell. So what are the three things of the world? One is the lust of the flesh. So first of all, let's talk about that word lust. The word lust over the years has been given a kind of a negative connotation. Lust means negative, right? Lust is ugly, lust is dirty, whatever, whatever. In the original language, the word there in and of itself has no negativity or positivity to it. What lust means in the Bible, this word here, it just means a strong desire or a strong impulse. A strong longing or a passionate craving directed toward an object. That's all it means. A strong, strong, passionate, passionate craving toward an object, towards something. That's what lust is. So in and of itself, lust is not a problem in using this context. The problem is where your lust is directed, where your strong passions, your strong desires, where that strong craving, oh, I just really, 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 really want, or I really, really wish I had, where those things are directed is where the sin comes in. So what John says here, one of the concepts of the world is the lust of the flesh. That word actually means, when you look at that, that phrase means lust that has its seat in the flesh. So if I am lust, I'm a strong desire, a passionate craving. The Bible says the problem comes when that strong desire, that passionate craving is sitting down in the flesh. So think of this chair as the flesh. So what's the flesh? Well, the flesh is man's fallen nature, which is character or its move is hostile to a God. You know what hostile means? Just against. Just whatever God says, I'm doing the exact opposite. That's me. And so when we talk about the flesh, flesh is that characteristic, that attitude, that mood that is hostile, that is in opposition toward God. 
anything that's inconsistent with God's will or inconsistent with his commands. That's what the flesh is, that desire to do that. And so what John says is when you take those longings and those passions and those strong cravings and you set that in the seat of the flesh, when your cravings and your desires are seated, when the Bible talks about seated, that means where you hang out at, where you live at, where you reside. So when that lust or that craving is seated in an area or position where it is inconsistent, inconsistent with the will of God, inconsistent with the commandments of God, hostile to a God, in opposition to what God says is word, that's where the problem comes. And that's what the world does. The world says, hey, take those strong desires or those passions that you have and sit them down here. This is a good place to put your strong desire. In areas that are hostile or against or in opposition against God. It's, a, it's a, an enticement or an attraction that comes from those bodily or mental impulses that are lined up into things that are against God. Turn quickly to Galatians chapter 5. What, do we, what are some of those things that are lusts of the flesh? What are those things that the flesh kind of does and hang out in? In Galatians 5.19, this is right before uh, Paul starts talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, now the works of the flesh, there's the word again. Remember, the flesh is man's fallen nature. It's that character, that mood that we have that is hostile, is in opposition toward God. The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What the world wants to do is wants to you attract you to take those desires and cravings that you have and sit them down in the flesh. So the lust of the flesh has to do with those things that we do that are against God. First John chapter 2, he then goes to the lust of the eyes. So that's the second one. Lust of the eyes, that's called, I was reading it, was called the Aiken syndrome. Y'all remember the story of Aiken? Y'all remember Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came. Falling down or tumbling down. Some kind of way they came down. So right after the church of Israel came out of Egypt, they came across the Red Sea. They came across the Jordan River. They was faced with Jericho. The walls were up. They marched around. The walls came down. It was an amazing victory. God told them to go in and to take all the spoils, take all the gold and the, the jewelry and, and, and the earrings and the fine linens and take everything as spoils. You won it over the war. Great time. Next time, they came up to another city called Ai. And when they came to Ai, God gave them different instructions. He said, when you go in and destroy Ai, don't take nothing. Command of God, don't take anything. And so the children went, they destroyed AI, yay, everything was good. And there was a bunch of gold laying around, a bunch of diamonds laying around, a bunch of jewelry laying around, a bunch of fine linen laying around, a bunch of cattle and wonderful things laying around. And Joshua reminded remember what God said, guys. God said, don't, don't take nothing. So there's one dude, and the Bible says, that he walked around, and Joshua, turn to Joshua chapter 7. It's crazy how it's laid out. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, the Aiken syndrome. So this is Achan talking. He already got busted because he did something he shouldn't have done. And so he's in front of Joshua. And Joshua said, dude, what, what happened, man? You, you heard the instruction. What, what went down? Why did you do what you did? Achan says, truly I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. <laughs> Verse 21. 
when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak of Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I then coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. The Aiken syndrome has to do with I saw it, I wanted it, I took it, and because of shame, I hid it. That was the Aiken syndrome. And so when we talk about the lust of the flesh, it has the idea of being attracted to things that are inconsistent with the God's will. Being tr- attracted to things that are inconsistent with God's commandment or things that are hostile against God. Through our eyes, that's what this whole thing. Through our eyes, we see something like, oh yeah, mm, that, I like that. <laughs> I, I like that. I saw it. Then they can say it, then I wanted it. And that is that desire of things that are inconsistent with God's will and God's commandment. God told him, when you go, don't take nothing. But he saw it and he wanted it. And then the part is, that last part is the taking of things that are inconsistent with God's will. It has to do with our eyes. Our eyes are the path through which outward things of this world, the riches, the splendor, uh, the beauty, all those things that we see that stimulate us, that gets us excited. Oh, yeah, I like that. I want that. That enticement of the outward appearance. And it has kind of a connotation of, uh, I think, the sin of covetousness wraps up in there. Now, that sin always confused me when I was little. I didn't really understand what covetousness was. I mean, it was the Ten Commandments, so obviously it's a big deal, right? Because God put it in the top ten. So obviously it's a big deal. But when I used to take the Ten Commandments, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or thy neighbor's donkey, or thy neighbor. I used to think, like, covet thy neighbor's wife. And he used to explain it. Coveted means... You want something really bad, but you want that specific thing. And that specific thing you want. And I used to think, I said, but that doesn't make sense. Like, do I, I want somebody else's wife. Like, I want a wife, but I don't want her to be my wife. You know, and, and, or but the neighbor's donkey. Like, I don't want my neighbor's donkey. Like, like they used to say, hey, you just see a car somebody drive, and you really want that car. Like, yeah, but I can go to the car lot and get another car that looks just like it. So what's really covetousness? And then in studying, you look at covetousness is that idea to have a strong impulse or uh, an unrestricted desire. That's the key there. The key there is an unrestricted desire toward something you're not supposed to have. That unrestricted means I will do whatever it takes to get that. I'm talking whatever it takes. I don't care if it's right. I don't care if it's wrong. I'm going to get that. That's what that idea of, of coveting is. And uh, when, when you look at that to covet something, it's the recognition that something is sinful, it has visual appeal, then wanting it for the sake of its visual appeal, and then going out and getting it. And we're talking about things, again, that are inconsistent with the will and the commandment of God. Now, the world does a great job with this one. I mean, when you talk about, when you turn on the TV... When you look at the internet, when you at the movies, there is always something, buy this, get this. It's new, new and approved. He's like, man, I got the old one. Man, they got a new one. They got an Xbox, what is it? The Xbox, what is out now? What is the Xbox X? One X. And I'm like, what's the difference? Well, it's, it's new. <laughs> I'm like, okay, but, but what's the difference? Like, I got an Xbox. Well, now you can play 4K on it. Okay, that's... That's cool. 
But it's always something, no matter what. You know, I was thinking about the phone. My phone died. And I was like, okay, I need to get a new phone. But you see, you got to pace yourself when you get a new phone. Because, you know, the iPhone 8 just came out. And then actually, two weeks later, iPhone 10 came out. It's like, okay, what do I do? Should I get the 8 or should I get the 10? <laughs> he said, neither. <laughs> Go Samsung. <laughs> you know, the next year, the iPhone 11's coming out. And then iPhone's 12 and 13, it's like, it's always something better. It's always something new. It's always something different. And when we talk about the lust of the eyes, it's that idea of I'm never satisfied. I, I see that. I've got to get it. The kingdom of this world wants us to be caught up into that. And lastly, back in 1 John, it was the pride of life. Those three. The pride of life has to do with that flashiness of human life. It has to do with the show-offness. That's not a word, but I just made it a word. The show-offness. All right, that vainglorious display. Literally, the word means conceited and vulgar display, especially of wealth or luxury intended to impress or attract someone else. That's what the pride of life is. John says that when we look out in the world, the world wants us to be prideful. The world wants us to be flashy. Look at me. Look what I got. Look what I can do. Those things that we brag about. And sometimes you say, well, I'm not a bragging person. You might not brag out loud, but sometimes you brag it in your mind. I've caught myself sometimes bragging in my mind. That's, I'm confessing right now. You, know, you see somebody like, those people are just ghetto. <laughs> Luckily, I'm of a class of person <laughs> that I don't stray in those same areas. I, I've got class. I've got sophistication tility. It's, it's, it's another word that doesn't exist. But I have it. <laughs> but, that, but that idea of bragging, that idea of I'm better than, or I wouldn't do that because I'm of whatever. It's that pride, that show-offness that I want people to see what I have, or I want people to see what I can do. Not because of the idea of to bless someone or to make somebody happy, but just to bring attention to me. When you look at all three of these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, they all have to do with selfishness. It all has to do with I. It all has to do with me. It always has to do with look at me. You know, I have this strong craving and I'm going to take this desire and I'm going to sit it in the flesh because it's something that I really want to do. And I know it's inconsistent with God's will and I know it's not consistent with his commandments. And I know this is hostile toward God and it goes against everything that's in this book. But I really, really want this. So I'm going to. Because it's about me or the lust of the eyes. I got to have that, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. If it means cut somebody, that means I'm going to do it. If it means betray somebody, I got to do it. Why? Because I got to have that thing because it's all about me, and then the pride of life. Look what I got. Look what I can do. Those are the three areas that the world uses to try to entrap us. And there's a constant promotion and a constant glorification of these three things in the world's kingdom. When we look at the world's kingdom, like I said, you turn on the Internet or you look at YouTube, the flashiness about it. You know, and sometimes we get caught up into that. Oh, look how many cars they got. Or, or look at the clothes they're wearing. Or look at that. And the world tries to portray that this is what you should be focused on. Get more. Get this. Look like this. Act like this. Be like this. Enjoy this. And sometimes in the body of Christ, we get caught up into that. You know, we're not out there, you know, doing the big sins, you know. Those sins that everybody, oh, that's wrong. But sometimes we get caught up in a little bit of pride. Just a little bit of, you know what, I am a little better than them. You know, I don't, I don't deserve that. I deserve the best. Because I deserve the best, I'm going to get the best, no matter what it takes. You know, I might sacrifice spending time with my family. But that's what I want. 
You know, I, I, I think about, you know, the job I have, and sometimes I have opportunities to move up higher in my job. And I really think about it, I say, is that something I want right now? Because I look at those people who are at the VP level and the director level, and they don't see their family. They literally do not see their family. And sometimes they even brag about it. Say, oh, man, I've been on the road for six months straight. Been home one weekend. I'm like, but that's not good. You've got children and a wife. Like, what, what are you doing? Oh, man, you know, we got to do what you got to do. Got to get that money. I'm like, yeah, got to get that money, but you don't have who you spending it on. You know, and sometimes the world tell us, you know, you need to have 17 jobs and, and, and you should be driving this car. So do whatever it takes to drive this car or you should be dressing like this. So do whatever else. Or your kids should always have the newest or the fanciest. So do whatever it takes to get that. Now, if that means that you can't spend time with them, that means you got to work 89,000 hours a week. That's what you got to do. Small sacrifice to make sure that they get everything they're supposed to have. And sometimes we even as Christians get caught up into that. And, and, and I look at it and I say, you know what, right now. You know, we, we've made a decision to raise these kids and to spend a lot of time and effort and resources in them. And it's not easy at all, all times. You know what I'm saying? The sacrifices that you make and the time that you put aside to do that. But that's what we signed up for. And right now, in my mind, my responsibility is to raise these three to be representations of the kingdom of God when I'm gone. So that when mom and dad are not around, they can stand in that world, in that kingdom, like Daniel and Azariah and Mishael. And help me out. What's the third one? Hananiah. Thank you. No, we're not doing that. We're not doing that anymore. <laughs> but that's, that's my responsibility. And so because of that, now I look at that and that is a desire that I have that's not seated in the flesh, but it's seated in the word of God. Bible tells me my responsibility as a parent is to raise my children under the knowledge and admonition of the word of God so that they can continue to portray what God wants in this world. We must proactively and constantly guard ourselves and renew ourselves so that we will not fall into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life. So back to Daniel. This is what. The Chaldeans wanted to do to these Hebrew boys. They wanted to get them caught up in the big three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and pride of life. And so after the brainwashing thing they tried with the language and the literature, we look at Daniel chapter one, verse five. The king assigned them a daily portion of the king's food he ate and of the wine that he drank. And I was always wondering, I said, OK, well, what's the significance of the king's wine and the king's food? What was it? Because Daniel doesn't specifically say what it was they were trying to feed him. It just say he assigned them the king's food that he ate and the wine that he drank. So the Bible doesn't specifically say what it was. But there was something about this that had to do with the whole brainwashing thing. Something about this food and this wine that it was trying to get these Hebrew boys who had sold themselves to God, who had given themselves to God, to try to get them to leave that kingdom, that mentality, and come to their own Babylonian godless kingdom. One of the reasons there could have been a problem with the food was the fact of the Levitical law. Now, remember, the children of Israel had some specific dietary rules that they had that God had told them, specifically. One of the things that was very specific, he told them they couldn't eat anything that came from the pig. So they couldn't eat pork. They couldn't eat bacon. They couldn't eat sausage. They couldn't eat, uh, I guess that's it. Well, that's all the tasty things. Then you got, like, pig feet and pig ears and 
we, salami. I don't know what salami is exactly. <laughs> but yeah, all those things that God had told them they were prohibited by the law of God. Now walk with me now. These things were prohibited by the scriptures. God had given them a commandment and said, thou shalt not eat this. And so it was the law of God. It was commandment of God. And so to do so was a direct violation of a specific scripture. What the Babylonians and the Chaldeans were trying to do was to get them to eat this food that the king ate and drink this wine that the king ate. And in doing that, it was a possibility that it was a direct violation of a specific scripture. Satan's number one attack has always been and will always continue to be the authority of the scripture. Satan's number one attack is always going to be to try to get you to think, well, did God really say that? I mean, he said it, but did he really mean what he said? Satan's number one thing. You look back in the Garden of Eden with Eve. He he rolled up on Eve like, oh, look at that fruit. And Eve's like, yeah, it does look good, lust of the eyes. And the Bible said that she wanted it, lust of the flesh. And Satan said, but then she said, well, God said we couldn't eat it. But what did Satan say? Did God really say you couldn't eat it? Always challenging the authority of Scripture. Always challenging what the Word of God says. The reason why you do that, the reason why there's Satan attack on us, is because if you can destroy the authority of this book, if you can destroy the authority of what God says, then everything's up for grab. And so that's what Satan tries to do. Oh, it's difficult to read my Bible, you know. You know, sometimes I try to read it and I just don't really understand it. Yes, <laughs> you don't understand it. It's a hard book, hard book to understand. Let's read one chapter and then just put it down for a week or so. You know, I really want to read the Bible, but you know what I'm saying? Sometimes I read it, and, you know, I fall asleep, and I wake up like, man, because it's too late at night. Yes, it's boring. The word of God is boring. Why is it so boring? Some other books are exciting. How about that Harry Potter book? Oh, that's an exciting book. Read that all the time. And, you know, I don't want to spend time with the Bible, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, sometimes I, you know, I really don't have time. I really don't have time to read the Bible. I really don't have time to get into the word of God because so much is going on in life. Yes, you don't have time. How about you pick up those video games, though? Those are fun to play for hours. Oh, maybe you should go on Facebook and just scroll up and down and see what your friends and family are doing. (laughs) Oh, how about that TV show? Why not binge watch it? Watch all 49 episodes in one night. You've got time for that, but you don't have time for the Bible because that's what Satan wants to do. He tries to because, again, if he can get your mind off that book, if he can pull away and destroy the authority of the word of God or what God says, then there isn't any authority anywhere. And if there's no authority anywhere, that means nothing matters. Nothing really matters. Nothing matters. And if that happens, that means everything becomes arbitrary. That means everything becomes choice. Bohemian Rhapsody. That's what we're looking at. <laughs> Everything becomes choice. Everything becomes a personal whim. Whatever I feel like doing. Why? Because there's no authority. Why? Because Satan's job, his responsibility is to pull away the authority of this book. And so what the children of Israel were faced with, those Hebrew boys were faced with, should we obey the scriptures of what God said or should we not? And go ahead and eat this king's food and drink this king's wine. The other aspect of that is that sometimes in the Babylonian times, before they sold food, they offered it to the gods. 
We talk, we've seen that in the scriptures. The Bible talks about food that was offered to idols. Don't eat the food that was offered to idols. That was a big issue in the New Testament, whether or not they should or should not. The idea was if you participated in this food that was offered to idols before they cut it up and passed it out and sold it, it was some kind of way participating in idol worship, which was another direct violation from the word of God. Sometimes some things that we do that are on the surface, they're innocent. But as a body of Christ, we need to look at those, all those things that we do and say, okay, does this have any type of sinful connotation to it? Though it might be innocent in and of itself. Is there something in here where it could be a trap from Satan to try to get me to take my desires and my emotions and my longings and my cravings and sit them down in the flesh? Or to use my eyes and see something and be attracted with something so much and be focused on something so much, take my focus on what I should be, and I'm focused on this thing, and I want it, and I'm going to get it, whatever matter what it takes, and I'm going to grab it. Or does this thing have something to do that could be in any way prideful, any way about me, boasting about myself, who I am, what I can do, what I've done? We have to be especially careful as the body of Christ. Why? Because we have a responsibility to represent God and his kingdom in this world. That's our responsibility to do that. Another thing, over in the East, there was a standard that whenever you ate a meal with someone or you shared a meal with someone, it was, it was the idea of committing to a friendship. Back in the day, in the Eastern part of the world, it was almost like a covenant significance. Like you make a covenant. If I sit down at the table and eat with you, it's like we are getting into a tight-knit relationship. That's how important food was and and the sharing of food back in the day. And so to do that was kind of like saying, I'm really going to join up. I'm cool with you, with everything you do and everything you're about. So I'm going to join up with you and we're going to be familiar. We're going to be on that cool level because we're sharing a meal together. And one of the reasons why that might have been an issue for the Hebrew boys was because of their covenant or their alignment was lined up with God, not with man or not what these people were pushing. I thought about another reason why the king wanted to eat his food. Y'all remember um, the line of witch in the wardrobe, right? And Edmund, and he didn't believe Lucy. He finally came through the thing, and he was walking, and he saw this, uh, this lady come up to him. It was the white witch, right? And the white witch saw him. She was like, are you uh, Adam, son of Adam? He know what we're talking about, blah, blah, blah. But eventually, uh, she realized who he was and what was about to happen. And so she was like, you know, how can I get this dude to give me the information I want to do what I want him to do? So what did she use to trick him? Turkish delights. So the first thing she did was, remember she took her thing and she tapped the snow and it turned to a cup of warm, creamy, hot chocolate. And Edmund drank that hot chocolate. It was so delicious that she had him. Then she asked him, what is the, remember, watch, remember the story, what is the one thing that you like above all else? And he thought for a moment, lust of the flesh, desires, his passion, what did he want? And he was like, Turkish delight. And she took her wand, touched the snow, and up came this container of all the Turkish delight he wanted. And he started to eat. And he started to eat that Turkish delight. And as she started eating, next thing you know, he was sitting in the chariot with her. And he was eating. And she was like, so, do you have brothers? Mm-hmm, I got a brother and two sisters. Mm-hmm. And we over here. And she met some guy named Mr. Thomas. And, yep, he started telling her everything. And eventually it led to a betrayal of his own family, which eventually left, led to death. Aslan died based on all that kind of stuff. What happened was 
She used her flattery of her gifts and the flattery of things of his desires that he wanted to try to trap him because he got a taste of the good life. He got a taste of the good stuff. You ever been somewhere? I think Melissa was telling about that y'all trip to Miami. Y'all went to Miami, y'all got a hotel and you was just treated so fancy. You know, you ever been somewhere and you got treated more than you normally do? Oh, let me get that bag for you, sir. Well, no. Okay, well, yes. <laughs> you know? Or, or you get a fancy new car, a rental car, and it's like, look, we're out of rental cars, so we're going to have to give you this Audi 9. Well, darn it, I'll take the Audi 9. <laughs> you know? Or you go somewhere flying and say, oh, we're going to put you in first class. You ever get treated some way that you normally don't get treated? How quick you get attracted to that? Like, well, well this is how I should be doing it all the time. <laughs> I should always get treated like this. What, what, what am I doing going to Circle 8 hotels? This is not a hotel I need to be going to. You get trapped up into that. You get caught up into it. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do. He was trying to wet their palate. He was trying to give them a taste of this good life, this good eating. See, I'm your friend. I like you. I'm giving you what I'm eating. You're drinking what I'm drinking. And with that lust and that desire, you get caught up and they get entrapped. He wanted to trap them. The thing about sin is that if sin didn't feel good, it wouldn't be sin. Think about that for a minute. If sin didn't feel good for a moment, it wouldn't even be an issue. But the problem is that that sin in that moment, when you're doing that thing that's uh, hostile toward God, that's inconsistent with the will of God, or inconsistent, doesn't line up with the commandments of God, for a moment it feels good and it seems good, but it always, 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 always brings destruction. That's the piece that the world forgets to tell you. When you look on TV and you see all these people doing this and saying this and acting this way. You know, when you see the celebrities on the new car or they just got married in France or look, they just got 17 different this or they just got this accolade. You see all that, you're like, oh my goodness, but they don't even love God. But why in the world are they getting all that? What the world fails to show you is the result of that sin. And so what Satan wants to do, he wants to attack us he attacked their mind last week with the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. This week he wanted to attack their, their senses, their desires. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. As world engines, as followers of God, as members of the kingdom of God, we have a responsibility to shun away from, to reject, to renew our minds, to guard our minds so that we will not get caught up in the three-way attack of this world, of this kingdom. We can't afford to do that. And so the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Those desires, those attack of those senses, things you see, things you really, really want, that pride. Enjoy yourself, but behold, the writer says, this was also vanity. Remember we talked about that word, vanity was, it was nothing. It was empty. It looked like something, but it was just like vapor. It was empty. The chasing of pleasure was empty. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. 
I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruits and trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest with glowing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herbs and flocks, more than any who ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures and kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to the delight of the sons of man. He goes on to say that whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from them. Everything I saw, I, I snatched it. I took it. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Anything I wanted to do, any desire, any craving, any longing I had, whether it was seated in the flesh or not, the writer says, I did it. Then I considered all my hands I'd done and all the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, it was all nothing. It was empty. It was like chasing after the wind. Have you ever caught the wind? You ever tried to catch the wind? And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The world paints this picture. That here's what you should get. This is what you should be. This is how you should act. This is what you should want. As the body of Christ, our responsibility to allow our desires that we have, that God gave us. God gave us desires. But we have to make sure that we don't take those desires and sit them in the seat of the flesh. But our desires and our longings are sitting in the seat of the spirit. That means our desires and our longings are wrapped up in love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. That's why desires are locked up in. Those things that I look at with my eyes, I make sure that what I'm looking at, Job said it, I made a covenant with my eyes. We have to make a covenant with our eyes. That those things I'm looking at, that I'm going to make sure that all my wants and desires for the things I see aren't seated in the flesh, but also seated in the spirit of God. And then I want to make sure that my pride, I constantly renew my mind so that I won't be prideful. Even if it's not outward pride, it could be that inward mental pride. Make sure that we get away of all phases of pride. And then like these four Hebrew boys, make sure that we obey, especially the specific scriptures that are lying out. When God says, do not do this, I make sure I do not do that. And there is no compromise. Why? Because the authority of scripture is all that we have. And when we get away from following the word of God, all bets are off. And then Satan gets his opportunity. And then we are not world engines. We are not representative of the kingdom of God. We actually fall into the kingdom of the world. And then there is no distinction between us and them. And that's when God steps in and handles his business. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for the word that we were able to look at today, God. We pray, God, that as the body of Christ, that we will not fall for the three temptations, God, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, God. Pray, God, that we won't get caught up into what the world says we should be chasing after or what the world says should be our number one focus. That our focus will be seated in your spirit, God. That everything that we do, we say, we think, we long for, we desire, we go after, we put our mind to, that all those things will be rooted and grounded into your spirit. That it will be filled with your, the fruits of the spirit, God, and they will be consistent with your will, consistent with your word, and consistent with your commandment, God. I pray, God, that we will be an example and a light to all around us, God, that we may bring your kingdom to this earth. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, 
visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.